Could you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy again this morning as we continue our series uh, in Paul's letter to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus. Uh, And we've got a very short reading this morning, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, just verses 14 to 16. Um, The last two weeks we've spent looking at the qualifications uh, for elders and deacons, uh, and now uh, Paul comes to a kind of a brief interlude uh, in the middle of his letter, and, um, and what we will see is this interlude is actually at the very heart of the letter to Timothy. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 14 to 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory." Just those three verses, and we have already prayed that God would be pleased to open our hearts to His Word this morning. So we come to this very brief, short portion of Scripture this morning, and yet it is one which many commentators argue is at the heart, or it's really the central purpose, not only of this letter to Timothy, but really all three of the pastoral epistles to Timothy and to Titus. If you've been here since the beginning of the series, you'll know that Paul has been writing to pass on instructions uh, to Timothy regarding God's pattern for faith and conduct in the church in Ephesus. Uh, He's concerned that the church should contend for the gospel. And so far, he's spoken about putting a stop to the false teachers in the church. He's laid down again a, a foundation of both truth and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And then he moved on to give instructions to the corporate church. Firstly, about the importance of prayer, corporate prayer in the life of the church. And then to give specific instruction about the roles of men and women in the church. uh, And more specifically, over the last two weeks, instructions regarding the offices of elders and deacons in the church. And so it was appropriate this last Wednesday evening that we gathered as members of this church to vote for elders of the local congregation here at Honeyridge according to the criteria laid down for us uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And Paul has a lot more to say to Timothy in the remaining chapters about what God desires in terms of the body of Christ and and how we should function as believers and how we should conduct ourselves as the church and in the world. But before he moves on to chapters 4 to 6 and the rest of his instruction to Timothy, he pauses in these three verses to kind of take a step back and remind Timothy and remind the church in Ephesus the reason why he is so concerned for the church and why he's writing this letter to them. In verse 14, we we see the, the longing desire in the pastoral heart of Paul. He longs to be with the people of God in Ephesus. 
There's nothing harder for a pastor to deal with than to hear that a congregation, a group of people that you perhaps ministered amongst for many years has subsequently been led astray from the truth of the gospel and is falling away from the living God. This was the situation in Ephesus. And so Paul, uh, as a matter of urgency, he sent Timothy to the church there to go and put an immediate stop to the false teaching and to call the church back to the centrality of the gospel. But Paul's desire was to be with the church, to, to join Timothy soon, that he might come and see what has taken place in Ephesus and might help to put back in place the theological and practical principles that the church needed uh, to be healthy and to grow. Now we're not sure of the exact details, uh, but it was likely, it seems, that Paul was going to be delayed. And so he's already sent Timothy, and because of the urgency of the problem in Ephesus, he now writes this letter to Timothy to pass on his instructions. Because a church which is subjected to false teaching is a church which is drifting away from the gospel, and this is a matter which cannot be left unattended. And so in the first place then, we see in verses 14 and 15, um, Paul's purpose for writing to the church and writing to Timothy. And, and his purpose is, be who you are. That's the reason behind this, this letter. Let's read verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Now this word ought in English in verse 14, um, how you ought to behave, I think it's lost its impact on us in modern English because when we say things today like, you ought to eat healthy, you ought to exercise regularly, it, it kind of comes across as a, as a good suggestion for your consideration if it's convenient. But the meaning of the Greek word is actually much stronger. The Greek New Testament scholar Bill Mounsey says this, the Greek word day means it is necessary. And it's an important word in the pastoral epistles. Its occurrence here in 3.15 carries the strongest meaning of all nine passages in which it is used. But Paul is not saying that the behavior he is describing is optional. No, it is mandated. It is required because the church is the house of the living God, the protector of the truth, and therefore it is absolutely essential that its integrity is maintained. Now we're going to get to the, the mandate and the mission of the church in a moment. But the first thing we need to do is to just pause and ask ourselves if we have a right view of the church. Do we have a right understanding of what the church really is, the nature of the church? Now hopefully I don't need to remind you that the biblical concept of the church is not the building. It's not this place where we gather and meet on Sundays. No, the biblical reference to the church is a people, the people of God. More specifically, people who have been called out of the world by God the Father 
and then saved by the work of God the Son, Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. And then we are brought together into a living community of God's people who are united together by God the Holy Spirit. God the Father calls, God the Son saves, and God the Holy Spirit unites us together into a community of people. So an individual Christian is not the church. And likewise, an empty building is not the church. I know we're all in the habit of saying, I'm just going to pop past the church on Wednesday and drop off something at the office. Well, the church is not here on Wednesday. The building is here on Wednesday, but we're not here. We are the church. So the church is a community of the people of God who've been saved by the grace of God, who've been joined together into a distinct people, a distinct body with Jesus as the head. We've been united by the Holy Spirit and then we function under the specific instructions that God has given to the church in order to fulfill the specific mission that God has given to the church. Now the problem we face today, however, is that generally speaking, the doctrine of the church, what theologians would call ecclesiology, that's the doctrine of the church, it's at an all-time low. And this, I think, is especially true in the years following COVID. People no longer have a high view of the church, which is why so many churches are happy to, to play games with God's ordained structure for the church, playing games with God's distinct roles for men and women in the church as we've considered, and play games with God's pattern for behavior or conduct in the church. I think this explains why also many Christians today, generally speaking, have a low view of church membership. Because the church is not being viewed biblically, as I hope to show you in a minute. But it's viewed like we view most other kind of social organizations in the world around us. We have a, a kind of consumer mindset of association rather than of belonging of affiliation rather than of family, or of convenience rather than of commitment. And so if something better comes along or my station in life changes, uh, I'm not getting out of this association what I had hoped, I simply move on to find something which suits me better. And then there's the availability these days of live streaming services into our homes as we're doing this morning. And there are more and more people who have practically traded their membership of a local body like the Honey Ridge Baptist Church. They've traded this membership to become members of the Bedside Baptist Church or the St. Mattress Anglican Church. It's real. So for the last three years or so, people who call themselves Christians have not meaningfully attended the local church or been part of the community of God's people. So it's crucial for us to see what Paul actually says about the church in verse 15. Please look at the pages of Scripture before you. Paul calls the church 
the household of God, the church of the living God. Uh, firstly, the word household, it refers to a family. It refers to a family unit. And he calls the congregation of believers in Ephesus the household, the family unit of the living God. Now, let's just think about that phrase for a minute, living God. We do not serve a God who is dead. We serve a God who is living. He's not a wooden or a bronze idol that, that lives on a mantelpiece. He is the living God who gives life and breath to all. He's the creator. He made time and, and space and matter and, and all living creatures. And he sustains all things by the word of his power. This living God does not live in temples or shrines. No, he dwells with his people who gather together in local assemblies all around the world. And he does so just as a father would gather his family into the lounge or around the dinner table. Paul says we are the household of God, the church of the living God. Now the idea here also has a, a strong connection to the Old Testament idea of the temple, the physical temple, which was the symbolic dwelling of God under the old covenant with his people. Because look at the rest of verse 15. Paul goes on to speak about pillars and, and buttresses or foundations. You see, the temple was the greatest of all constructions in, in human history up to this point, and perhaps ever since. It was the center of, of all Israelite worship right up until the temple was destroyed in AD 70. Now listen to what Solomon said just after he had completed constructing this incredible building, this temple that was dedicated to the Lord in, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and he spread out his hands toward heaven and he said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on the earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. So, so the great King Solomon knew very well that the most impressive of all physical constructions, the temple, it was only a symbolic shadow. Just a, a shadow of God's presence with his people. It was a shadow which pointed forward to a far greater future reality, which is Jesus dwelling with the church. Why was the earthly temple destroyed and never rebuilt for the last 2,000 years? Because it was a shadow. It was an Old Testament picture 
of a far greater reality, which is Jesus coming to earth and dwelling among his people. It's a shadow of the reality, which is God living amongst us by his Holy Spirit. So that's why Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I I read this passage on Wednesday night at our members meeting. He says to the church, do you not know that you, and that you in the Greek is plural, do you not know that you plural collectively are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you collectively? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you, plural, the church in Corinth, the church at Honey Ridge, you are that temple. So the church brings together this idea of both a family and a a temple. God is, is our Father, and we are members of His household, but at the same time we are living stones that are formed into a temple where God dwells by His Holy Spirit. Now the Ephesians should have known this. Paul taught this to them back when he originally wrote Ephesians chapter 2 to them. He said to them, So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. They knew this. They'd forgotten And he has this idea of both a a household and a temple. This household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple to the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So because of who God is and because of who the church is, Paul's writing to the Ephesians and saying, be who you are. Be who you are. Live as the church in accordance with your identity as members of the household of God. You are the temple where he dwells by his spirit. Can I ask you a question this morning? Is this your understanding of us? Is this your understanding of the Honey Ridge Baptist Church? Are we being who we actually are in Christ? Are we conducting ourselves as the household, as the family, as the temple of the living God? Does that characterize us? Now I realize that there are some people who, due to God's providential circumstances in your life, perhaps due to to old age or to ill health or to poor eyesight or your inability to drive, you are no longer able regularly to physically gather with God's people on, on Sundays or in the week during our small group meetings. And I know that there are many of you watching online this morning who are at home because of these providential realities in your life and you would desire nothing more than to be with God's people today. 
But I do fear that there are many, many others who've simply chosen to be away from the gathering of God's people on a Sunday and the gathering of God's people in smaller groups, in homes and Bible studies during the week because it's simply more convenient. I hope you can see that according to Paul's definition of both a household and a temple, your absence from the, the family gathering, your absence from the, the family meal table when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, your absence for the, the spiritual baby showers that we have when we have baptismal services and new believers are testifying of God's grace in their lives, your absence as a living stone in the building means that theologically and functionally you're not part of the local church. Everything God's word says here of the church, it says to those who are gathered in community as the family of God, who've gathered as living stones into a spiritual temple, who gathered as members of a body with Christ as the head, not as individuals who watch church on TV or who voluntarily abstain from fellowship and worship together as God's people. So can I plead with you today? Pleading with you online if you're watching, but I'm also pleading with those of you today who perhaps this is your once a month or your once a quarter pop into church. Can I urge you to consider what God's word says about the incredible privilege of belonging to the bride of Christ. That's the church. We are the church of the living God. Can I ask you today, please submit your resignation to the Bedside Baptist Church. Certainly resign from the St. Mattress Anglican Church. And return. Return back to your family. Return back to your people. Return back to your church, which is where God has called you to belong here at Honey Ridge. I know with live streaming as well, there are perhaps people all over the country or the world who've chosen for some reason to tune into Honey Ridge's services on a Sunday. You need to find a local church in your hometown and belong. We are not a perfect church. Those who are here will tell you that. But we are called to belong to be part of a family that God is the head of as our Father. Well, Paul moves on to explain that because the church is what it is, the temple of the living God, the family of the living God, God has given to us as the church a mandate and a mission. So let's move on in verse 15 to consider God's mandate to the church, which is to support and to protect the gospel, the truth of the gospel. He says in verse 15b, he calls the church a pillar and a buttress of the truth, or a pillar and a foundation of the truth, depending on your translation. Again, one commentator says, this is perhaps the most significant phrase in all of the pastoral epistles. It shows more clearly and more dramatically than anything else what is at stake in the Ephesian heresy. 
and why it is essential that the church conduct themselves properly. Not only is the Ephesian church a house of the living God, but one of its functions is to support and to protect the proclamation of the gospel. Now we understand a, a pillar, I hope, a pillar supports the roof of a building. But this word for buttress uh, or, or foundation, depending on the ESV or the NIV, it's, it only occurs this once in the New Testament, and it's not clearly attested to in other writings. But the, the best evidence that a, is that this buttress or a, a bulwark is another English word, had this function of, of being like a retaining wall strengthening and, and protecting a building from falling over, particularly in the case of an attack. So as we combine these thoughts, we see that Paul is, is issuing the church with a clear mandate to both support as a pillar and to protect the truth of the gospel. Now this is why Paul has been so determined to put an immediate stop to the false teachers why his instruction uh, to Timothy has been so direct and so clear. Because if the church leaders go astray, then the church tends to go astray. And if the church goes astray, it's no longer able to fulfill its God-given mandate, which is to support and to protect the truth of the gospel. If we no longer support the truth of the gospel, we've lost our purpose in this world. In actual fact, when false teaching takes root in the church, when people no longer adhere to patterns as we've seen of church leadership or gender roles or, or prayer in the church, when the church who is meant to support the truth in actual fact becomes the promoter of error, we actually lead people further away from the truth of the living God. And we see this in Christianity all around us today. The largest group of people who are being deceived into a false gospel are not those who've joined some sect or cult. They are those who are being led astray in mainline denominational churches on Sundays where the church has drifted away from the truth of the gospel explains why Jesus' attitude to the churches in Revelation is so serious. Look at the church uh, in Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2 verse 12. This is Jesus and he says to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You, your church is located in the heart of, of Satan's city. Yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. These are believers. This is a, a good church. But, verse 14, I have a few things against you, says Jesus. There are some in your church who hold to the false teaching of Balaam. And there are some in your church who hold to the false teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now he says to the whole church, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the word, whether with the sword of my mouth. See how Jesus guards the purity of his church, a church which no longer holds on to the truth of God's word in all its fullness and entirety, and especially a church which 
allows the essentials of the gospel to be distorted is a church which stands under the judgment of God and he will come as the one with the sharp two-edged sword to purify his church. Remember what we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. What kind of a father would you be if you allowed robbers and bandits into your home and then left them to make themselves comfortable in your lounge? What kind of a father would you be if you allowed other men to come into your home and to seduce your wife and your daughters? Of course not. We defend our families at all cost against those who would bring evil and destruction into our homes and here we see too that this is God's attitude towards his household, towards his family. So Paul has helped the church to understand our very special place in God's kingdom. And with that he explains a unique mandate given to the church. And that is that we are to be the supporter and the protector of the truth. The question is what is the truth? that we must support and then protect at all costs. Our modern culture today rejects any claim of absolute truth, any claim to something being right and other things being wrong. And yet Paul says that God's mandate to the church is that we are to support the truth. And so it's this matter then of ultimate truth salvation truth that Paul now turns as he explains to us God's mission for the church which is to proclaim the gospel God's mission for the church is to proclaim the mystery of the gospel let me bring up verse 16 and uh, leave it up there for a bit for us to focus on great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. The mission of the church of Jesus Christ is nothing other than to confess or to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. That's why we exist. This word confess here means publicly acknowledged, unashamedly proclaimed. This is the mission of the church, to declare to the world how great, how undeniable is the mystery of godliness, namely the good news of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who he is and what he came to do for sinners. Paul now quotes in verse 16 the words of what seems to be an early church hymn or perhaps a creed that they would have recited or a poem which contains the essential truth that God has entrusted to us to both protect and to proclaim. Now there's a lot of debate about how this poem should be divided. Is it one stanza of six lines? Is it two stanzas of three lines each? Uh, is it three stanzas of two lines each? Well, it depends on, on your um, 
Translation, the ESV lays it out like this, uh, two stanzas of three verses each. If you have the NIV, you'll see it's three stanzas of two lines each. I hope there are no English teachers here this morning, um, but it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter because although there is some logic to the way it divides up, um, the content is unaffected by the way we cut it up. But we're going to consider it just as it is uh, in the ESV, uh, which I think focuses in the first stanza on Christ's work on earth, and in the second stanza, the results which his work has accomplished. So in the first three lines, we see what it is that Jesus came to do. And we're just going to run through these quickly. He was manifested in the flesh. He was manifested in the flesh. The NIV says, he appeared in a body. And this speaks very clearly of Jesus' birth, his incarnation, the eternal word of God became flesh. He became a human being. He came to live the life that we could never live, a life of perfect righteousness. And then he came to die the death that we deserve to die for our sins. All of this truth of the incarnation is, is bound up in this first line. He was revealed in the flesh. The eternal God appeared in a body. You'll find that this is where most sects and most cults and most other religions differ from us fundamentally. The fact that God became a man. Secondly, he was vindicated by the Spirit. And that speaks here of both of Jesus' baptism. You'll recall where the Holy Spirit descended on him and God the Father declared, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. But I think it also speaks more specifically of Jesus being vindicated by the Spirit in his resurrection from the dead. All the claims Jesus made, his identity as the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who conquers sin and death and the powers of evil, when was that most clearly, most vividly seen? When was it most clearly vindicated? It was in his resurrection from the dead. All the claims Jesus made in his lifetime were vindicated in his resurrection when the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. And then thirdly, he was seen by angels. Again, most likely referring to Jesus' resurrection and ascension, both of which were witnessed to by angels. So the first three lines give us three important statements of truth. Glorious truth, gospel truth, truth which must be defended regarding who Jesus is and what he came to do on the earth. The next three lines move on to speak about what Jesus' life and work on earth accomplished. In other words, the results. And each of these lines parallels the first three lines. We see in the fourth place, he was proclaimed or preached among the nations. And this is the first outworking of the Great Commission, which Jesus gave to his disciples when he ascended. And the rest of the New Testament is a record of Jesus being preached to the nations. Jesus, who was manifested in the flesh in line one, is the same Jesus who is now being preached among the nations. We preach that salvation is found in no other name given under heaven by which men may be saved other than the God-man, 
Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who died in our place. Secondly, in the second stanza, he was believed on in the world. And this speaks about the whole process of conversion and the effects of the resurrection of Jesus being applied individually to you and me. You and I are here today because Jesus was preached to us at some point and then we believed on him. We believed on him. And this pattern will continue until Jesus returns. And I think this statement also parallels the second line which speaks of Jesus being vindicated by the Spirit. Because when the gospel is preached today, individuals put their faith in a risen, vindicated Savior, one who is alive, who is reigning on high. But there's more to it than that. Because just as the Spirit vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead, so the Spirit brings spiritual resurrection to our lives by raising us from the dead when we believe in Christ. Romans 8 verse 11 says, If the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. He was believed on in the world. And then finally, he was taken up in glory. And this is a parallel to line three, which speaks of being seen by angels. Ultimately, the end result of all that Jesus accomplished on the earth is his glorious reception into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of the Father and he reigns until one day he brings an end to all things. Although these last three lines are written in the past tense, we know that they speak of something which is continuous. Jesus had been preached to all the nations. He is still being preached to all the nations and he will continue to be preached to all the nations until he returns. Jesus has been believed on in the world. He is still being believed on in the world today and he will continue to be believed on in the world until he comes again. And so too with being taken up into glory. This was a historical event which took place at his ascension, a position of glory that he continues to occupy in the present, but there is still a future glory that we are waiting for, as the book of Revelation made clear, when Jesus comes again to destroy Satan forever. And we are to be united with him as his church for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the truth the great mystery of the gospel which has been entrusted to the church. Can I make it more personal? This is the truth which has been entrusted to the Honey Ridge Baptist Church in Johannesburg in 2023. God has given this truth to us to support and to protect and to proclaim. So I need to ask you at this point, before we close, do you understand the great mystery of godliness as outlined in these six lines? Do you understand the content of these six lines and what each one represents? If so, do you believe it? 
Is Jesus and his salvation your life now and your eternal future hope? And if so, and I trust that is true for most of us here this morning, then we are the temple of the living God. We are his family, we are members of his household, and we've been entrusted with this very special mandate and mission to both protect and proclaim the truth, which is the mystery of the gospel found in Jesus Christ. So we need God's help, don't we, to be vigilant and faithful as we take to heart every word of his instruction to us this morning. We look back on what Jesus has done for us in the gospel, that we live each day. I just love that testimony of that converted Muslim man. It was just the attitude of an individual Christian who showed him the emptiness of the entire system of Islam. Because that man had a living relationship with Jesus Christ. That's our mandate. That's our call to go and live that out every day as we look forward to the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ and his final glory. So may God help us this morning to be who we are in Christ as the Honey Ridge Baptist Church. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you again this morning for your word. We thank you particularly for passages like this that help us to see and understand the very special place that you have in the whole plan of redemption for the church. Lord, as you called the church in Pergamum to repent for ways in which they were embracing various false teachers and false beliefs, we also come before you this morning and we ask that you would forgive us for having believed false philosophies of this world regarding what the church is. And that's seen perhaps in our attitude and our commitment towards the local church. We pray, Lord God, that you would forgive us. And as we've been instructed from your word this morning to understand what an incredible, beautiful thing the church really is, so much bigger than any individual, so much bigger than watching a sermon on TV. We are a community. We are a family. We are the people of the living God. Won't you help us to grow more and more into the likeness and into the purpose and the mission that you have given to us to fulfill as the Honey Ridge Baptist Church. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.